Welcome to Bible Over Brews. Deep thoughts fermented over time and text. We come to you tonight, George. Yo. Gumby. What's up? D. Hey. And Brian Gadawa. Hoo-ha. <laughs> We're going to be talking all about his new book, which I'm very excited to read. Um, but first, Steve, you brought us a beer? Yes, I did. I have Brian Gast. Uh, Cougar Blonde. It's a, uh, a blonde uh, ale. So Rheingast is out of Cincinnati, Ohio. And um, I was able to get it. Uh, we have a new grocery store in the area called Lucky's, and that's where I got it at. So Awesome. I look forward to that. We featured Rheingast uh, once or twice before. Um, so far, it's been pleasant each time. So there you go, Steve. Are we trying it? We haven't told. Let's, uh, has there been a beer we haven't liked? Well, I, I, you and Mike, I don't think liked the tarts too much. Oh yeah, that was. It was that lemon one that wasn't that. Uh... <laughs> Which I thought it was okay. <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad you got a blonde because it's like super hot out. So yeah, I didn't want a dark, thick porter like beer. So a lighter beer will hit the spot better today. Yeah, I think they're all nice and light tonight. So okay, oh, cheers. 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 Yes. And oh, I'm drinking, cheers, I'm drinking wild turkey rye whiskey blonde. Oh, yeah. yeah. We are familiar with Blonde that. whiskey. Yes. I actually tend to keep uh, a little wild turkey in my fridge here and there. Puts hair on your chest. Yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> or takes it off. Or takes it off. Because you're a real man. <laughs> like wild turkey. Yeah, this is actually really smooth. This is nice. Not bad. Yeah, Light. Perfect for today. It's good for today. I'm putting it as like an average. Yeah. Light well, blonde. I'm going to say as, as a hot summer beer day. There you go. Yeah. It's good for hot weather. Am I, am I the only person that's going to be the one to say this and say, I don't, I don't mind like a fruity beer on a summer day. I can, has anyone else like follow the line, Kugels? Uh, yeah. No, no one wants to admit that Mike, on the radio. Mike, Mike Donahue does. Yeah. He does. Yes, he does. No one else? Yes. Me and Mike only? Yeah. No, I actually. No, guys. I mean, I'm such a man. It's either, you know, just straight up beer. Budweiser, All American, or whiskey. <laughs> not here, That's it. sir. Not here, man. No, no. I, <laughs> I actually really like like uh, um, not your father's root beer, and actually that whole line. Is it is good, good. and are strong. Yeah. So no, I'll I'll admit to enjoying some of the offshoots. Okay. Thank you, Juice. You're welcome. <laughs> you guys left me hanging. I hate you guys. <laughs> but I like the mango infused. Uh, Thank you. Habanero. That's. Uh, that uh, Masthead has. Yeah, wow, did you hear that, amazing. Brian? Yeah, that was for real. For all you people in the yeah, they, in they the blow audience, up dynamite. <laughs> that's uh, that's the fireworks in the background. We're entering the Fourth of July. Um, not quite there yet, but a couple of days, and so my street loves fireworks. That's what you hear in the background. <laughs> so, Brian, with with your whiskey or, or bourbon, I think you had bourbon last time, right? Yeah, you guys, you guys bought me some last time it was fantastic oh thank you oh that was from the cleveland uh whiskey company oh that was the cleveland yep. whiskey yes. yeah great company yeah it was good do you they like to mix any of your drinks or are you just straight up just straight yeah okay simple man stuff i like mine on the yeah. rocks <laughs> yeah but the secret sometimes yeah my wife's uh boss said the secret to bourbon is that you only use one ice cube Mm. Yeah. And you do it on the rocks. Yeah, yeah if Otherwise, you're fancy, you get the it. big block cube in there, or the big circle cube. It's a big one. Yeah. Have you seen that? Uh, yes. Right. And, uh, it's 
it's purposely made so that way very little of the water melts into it. Yeah, I like that. It's cool. Because <laughs> I do like cold, but I've just start. Sometimes I also I've started freeze, just putting it in the freezer anyway, so it's cold when it comes out. Awesome. There you go. Yeah. Let's just get to the point. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So let's let's hear about resistant revolt of the Jews. Well, let me tell you. Talk about fireworks. We'll have some fireworks uh, with this uh, show uh, if people are listening, um, because. Um, as we talked about last time, I have some controversial views uh, <clears throat> with um, with the dominant view in America of uh, many Christians about the end times, right? And uh, last time I was on the show, I think um, I don't know did, did we I don't know if we talked about the second book Remnant, but I know we talked about Tyrant. I'm pretty sure. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So anyway, um, I'm writing a series called Apo- uh, Chronicles of the Apocalypse, and the third book is called Resistant Revolt of the Jews. And the series is basically, I call it the origin story of the book of Revelation. So that, you know, there's a lot of books out there these days with people who are speculating on how they think Revelation might be fulfilled in our future, you know, and the mark of the beast and, you know, um, how it applies to uh, like modern day microchips and and transhumanism (laughs) and... And alien disclosure, you know, this, there's this whole, basically a whole world of big money selling stuff. Yeah. And I don't begrudge them that because they, I do believe they believe in it. But no, nevertheless, um, the, the, basically the, the, the view that most Christians have is roughly the left behind view. We all know that and, or different variations on that theme. And, you know, um, but there's, uh, but there are a couple other schools of thought that have a long scholarly pedigree and history. And uh, one of them is amillennialism, which uh, doesn't, which tends to interpret the book of revelation rather than like the, the normal premillennial or dispensational view that is the left behind view, right? That's the typical view that sort of believes we are probably in the end times right now, the last days. And uh, sometime soon uh, the Christians will be raptured and there will start a seven-year tribulation, and a, 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 a world ruler will rise up to save everybody, but he's really the Antichrist, and make a covenant with Israel and rebuild the temple, and you know, and then turn out to be you know wanting to control the world and all this stuff. And that's sort of the typical. And then Christ returns to destroy it all. And that's sort of the typical, you know, what I would call to, for for ease. Uh, of discussion, a futurist view. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, again, like I said, that's the dominant view. And But there are other views, and a lot of Christians haven't been educated on this. I wasn't many, many years ago. And when I discovered that this, that the typical left behind view was just one of several views uh, with, like I said, uh, a pedigree of scholarship within of Orthodox Christianity, I uh, I got mad because they they held it back. They just said, no, this is just what the Bible says, and they sort of hid the other views from me. Yeah. And when I start and when I started experiencing some of the the anomalies and some of the the tension points of this viewpoint, you know, for example, they'd been saying this for decades, you know, that the end was was near, and the, you know, when gen- when uh, Israel became a nation within one generation, all these things would happen. And I remember even Hal Lindsey and Chuck Smith, other famous men, saying that you know Christ was re- going to return or the rapture was going to happen within the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And these men were not held accountable because they continued on in their ministries when they yeah. were wrong and. 
anyway, this has been going on for years and, and every, you know, every five to 10 years when the geopolitics of the world changes, their interpretations change. And so yeah. now, you know, you have Islam is at the heart of it. And some people are saying, well, there's still people who believe that the Antichrist is going to be a Roman, the Pope for, you know, Roman Catholic Church. And some who say, oh, no, it's going to be a, a Muslim, you know, and some say, no, it's going to be a Jew. So they've, they've, their theories are always changing. That was one of the things that sort of really bothered me. Yeah. You know, it took time to really see that, though, because we're, you know, you're in this time period and you don't really unless you do research to find out what they said in the past. And now that stuff is available. You can go back and read Hal Lindsey's most famous, you know, sold 30, I think 35, 40 million books, more than anything in Christian history. It was right up there with the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. And this was this book talking about this stuff. And it, none of it happened. None. And this man was a false prophet, and yet yeah. he still is around today. Yep. So that was the kind of stuff that bothered me, as well as the fact that I started hearing these other views that I initially reacted to as being heresy. Because that's what I was taught. But then I found out, no, godly men have, have held these things. And one of the views is our millennialism. And, and that tends to interpret Revelation as more, no, that's more in an idealistic sense where it sort of describes history in a general way. And it applies to many different times in history. Um, so it's more of a generic prophecy, not necessarily specific. Um, but many godly and scholarly men have held that view. And then there's also the post-millennial view or, you know, what I'll, I'll uh and the post-millennial view is more that uh, is, is more preteristic, um, and and Amil's can be preterist too. And that view is what I now uh, support, which is preterist view. And the preterist basically means the past. It's a Latin word that means the past. And what that really means is, whereas m many most Christians would would believe that the last days in the Bible means the last days of the earth or of history. And that's in our future, futurist. My view, preterist, believes, no, the last days happened in the past, but they were the last days of the old covenant, not of time and history. Right. Mm. And so, mm. in other words, it's like the language that we automatically assume when we read the Bible as American modern Westerners. We read last days and we just impose our own subjective meaning on it rather than saying, well, let's find out what did it mean to the ancient world when they use these this language and these words, you know? And so, um, I, so, so that's kind of my viewpoint and understanding and starting to see how um, a lot of what the Bible says, including the book of Revelation, is really not about the end of the world judgment, but it's more about the judgment on first century Jerusalem for killing Messiah. Mm -hmm. And it also marks the end of the old covenant and the institution of the new covenant kingdom. And so that's sort of the heart and soul of it. That's the big picture of how I understand it. And of course, many Christians, you know, when you hear this, you know, you're going to have lots of questions from your own viewpoint. But what about this? What about that? Right. And trust me, they all have answers. Um, <laughs> uh, now, look, every system has holes and I may be wrong and I'm always open. I've held all the views at some point in my life, dispensational, mm. amillennial, premillennial. And so I know I know what it's like. And, and I think we all need to be humble. And, and but nevertheless, my view is a minority view, but it is a growing view. And I think one of the, it's probably one of the fastest growing views in the church. And I think one of the reasons why is we are now two generations past Israel become a nation, yep. becoming a nation. And so much of the future, not all, but a lot of the futurist um, sort of claims were that everything's going to end within a generation because Jesus said this generation will not pass yeah. away. Yeah. And so most people assume that's the generation that sees uh, Israel becoming a nation. Well, it's two generations now, folks. How, how much longer do you need before you start to say, 
maybe maybe the system should be questioned and let's consider something else. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that's kind of the, the, the world that we live in. So I'm a minority view. So I'm trying to get, trying to, trying to express this, get the word out. And I thought one of the best ways of doing it was to really continue the series that I had already been writing for the last six years, as we talked about on your show, Chronicles of the Nephilim. And Chronicles of the Nephilim was, was more about like the old Testament coming up to the new Testament and how, you know, there's the, you know, the odd things in the Bible, whether it's the Nephilim or the watchers, you know, and how did that all come into play with the coming gospel and Messiah? And, but I finished it in the, in the New Testament. And I realized as I was writing this, that, you know, Jesus was in his parables and in his teaching, he was, he was saying a lot about how, look, this adulterous generation is going to reject me. And, and, and in Matthew 23, he talks about how all the blood of all the prophets who've been slain in Israel will be upon this generation. Why? Because they, you will crucify the Messiah. You will kill Messiah. So yeah, if you kill the most, you know, if you kill God in the flesh, if you kill the most important prophet of all, you're going to have the blood of everybody on you, right? And that's kind of what Jesus was saying in Matthew 23, really plainly. I mean, I'm not, this isn't something I'm making up, you know? Oh, yeah. So if you want to call Jesus an anti-Semite, go ahead and be my guest. <laughs> Uh, but Jesus was condemning the first generation, not all generations. And, mm -hmm. and why? Because they would kill the Messiah. And that makes sense, right? But then he also said, because of that, your house will be left to you desolate. And that's in mm -hmm. Matthew 24, verse 1 and 2, I think. And, and why? What does that mean? You know? and, and the point of it is, is the, the house, was, which was the temple of God, that was the incarnation of the old covenant, yeah. And so it makes sense that if God is bringing in the new covenant, and he's getting rid of the old covenant. Well, then it makes sense that he would get rid of the historical earthly incarnation of that old covenant. Right. And mm -hmm. that's what the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in AD 70. That's why it's so crucial and important to understanding Christianity. We, we stop after the book of Acts because that's where the book of Acts ends. The Bible roughly ends. Of course, there is revelation, and that's my argument. But nevertheless, <laughs> I mean, most Christians stop at, at Acts, and I get that. We don't know what we get, well, what happened from book of Acts to, to – which is around – what, ended around eighty fifty two or something like that. Uh, and, and, and then by in, in the next uh, 20 years or so, there was 20, 30 years – it led up to a revolt by uh, by uh, the Jews against Rome, you know, and they were expecting Messiah to come and save them. Mm -hmm. So they rose up in revolt, and there was a war. Nero Caesar sent his armies over to subdue all of Israel and destroy it all, basically, and and destroy the temple. And they ultimately did that, and that's what happened in AD, AD seventy. And so that's an event that I thought it's so important to understanding not just Judaism, because it ended Judaism, right? And yeah. after that, Judaism became a religion, a different religion. They mm -hmm. no longer have, what's the old Torah? Torah is all about the temple and, and the sacrifices. Well, they don't have a temple, so they're no longer a Torah religion. Right. They give it lip service, but they're not. So it changed Judaism into something different than the Bible, but it also changed Christianity because from that point, Christianity broke off from Judaism. You know, it was obviously, it grew out of, Judaism, the Messiah of the Jews, but then God brought in the Gentiles, and that bringing in the Gentiles made it a more universal scope, but they were still stuck because Jerusalem was still there and the temple was still there. Yeah. And so once it was destroyed, Christianity then just grew out and, and just covered the earth and, and such. And so that's sort of the, the big picture story that has impressed me that I wanted to tell that, that war with the Jews and how Rome came in. And, and you know, we hear about 
you know, Christians being thrown to the lions under Nero Caesar. I tell all that in this in this series, and I wanted to I wanted to tell the historical time period from about AD 64, uh, which was the the start uh, the the Great Fire of Rome when Rome was burned down, and then Nero blamed the Christians in order to persecute them, and that started the first Great Persecution, which. I argue is the, what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, and then that ultimately leads, leads up to the destruction of Jerusalem and such. So, um, I wanted to tell that story. I wanted to tell the history of it. So I did. Ma- I've done massive research. I try to keep it very consistent. Mm-hmm. And um, the first book, Tyrant, talked about the, the the rise of Nero, and like I said, the not the rise, but um, you know, the Great Fire of Rome and how Nero sort of affected. Christianity and went after Christianity. And I also talk about the, you know, the, the martyrdoms of Paul and Peter in Rome and, and some of those traumatic effects that we, we have legends of, but we're not entirely sure of, right? So I wanted to tell that story. And then that, then what happened was I, I thought, well, you know, I don't want to just do, you know, I can do the theology and I've got a theological book about this as well called End Times Bible Prophecy. But <laughs> prophecy can be a very complex thing. And a lot of Christians can it can be overwhelming or it's just, oh, it's just too much. I don't want to get caught up in all that. Yeah. I understand. Some Christians, it's just hard to follow because it can get very deep. So what I want to do is I want to do put that into a story form, make it entertaining so that Christians will enjoy it and they'll draw something from it theologically if they want to, but they'll also learn about the historical events, right? So that was sort of my intent behind the whole series. And um, and so far it's going really well. Um, all the books are usually in the top 10, you know, depending on what day it is, they're usually in the, in the top 10 of uh, biblical fiction on Amazon. Yep. And uh, the nice. second book was, okay, so so here was the premise of the story. You got start with Nero, the ultimate bad guy. He's tyrant, right? And he finds out, he, he finds out that there's this subversive letter that's being passed around the empire. And it, it talks about the end of the world and the assassination of, the, of Caesar, right? So he's going... What? So he's, he, he gets a Roman warrior and he, he gives him the commission, go and find this letter and find who's writing it and kill him. That's Severus, and, right? Yeah, that's Severus, right. So, <laughs> and then the Severus is the, is the Roman and he happens to have a Jewish doctor who is his, his uh, servant. And then he has a Christian woman who's a slave. So these three go on this journey of trying to track it down. And of course, there's obviously all kind of political things going Brian. on because what Go ahead. No worries. No worries. I just wanted to ask you a question about um, when you said this woman's a slave, can you help me define slave? Oh, oh here we go. Yeah, that's a good question because, um, of course, in Rome, uh, the understanding and in ancient world, the, the understanding of slavery is not the way we understand slavery. When we think of slavery, it's the antebellum South. Right. And uh, it's, it's usually race based. And it's usually white people enslaving black people. But slavery was a more generic term in, in, and certainly in the Roman Empire, which could include every, anything from an indentured servant to an actual slave who, you know, they, they were born and raised within a slave household. And so they don't really have their freedom. But it's more, I think it's more akin to what we would call servanthood. And there's just different levels of of uh, protection that you might have. So in the end, sometimes servants could actually buy their freedom. Uh, sometimes servants were lo- let let go because their masters, you know, um, for whatever reason. Sometimes they were captured from other nations, right? So there's a wide variety of what slaves are. But at a- that particular time, I have the Christian was because the Christians were blamed for doing this to Rome. 
then they were fair game. They, people were killing them and stuff, and mm-hmm. you could also take them as slaves. And in fact, becoming a slave might save you because otherwise you, you'd be thrown to the lions. And that's kind of what happens in, in, in my story. Yeah. Is, that, is that along the lines of what you were – yeah, I was just I've been going on and on with Juice about this since I think I joined the podcast. <laughs> so I, I guess I was just wanted to get another you know, a brilliant mind like yourself to help me uh argue with Juice a little more, but I'll save it for another podcast. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> well, I'll certainly acknowledge that uh I think I think it's a comp a lot of things are complex issues when you're looking back and interpreting the ancient world and we do it so much through our own eyes. And so we just have to be careful. My goal is to try to seek to understand it within their context. And, and that means, you know, uh, that means trying, trying to understand first how they understood it rather than imposing our own understanding upon it. So I, yeah. So in general, even but slavery in the Bible is not the same as what we think of it. And I think it's closer to indentured servitude. Most of the time. So, Brian, I have a question. You said that Nero blamed the Christians for the fire, uh, but it almost is that actually what happened? Were the Christians actually to blame for the uh, Great Fire of Rome? I don't believe so. Um, and we do have some slight uh, references to it historically in uh, writers like uh, Suetonius and Tacitus, who were Roman historians. Um, and basically, there no one knows for sure, but there mm-hmm. are a couple theories. Um, and one of the theories, which I think is actually the strongest because it seems to fit the evidence best, mm-hmm. is well, let me think if there's an, another another theory. Um, well, obviously, one theory would be that the Christians did it, um, but the other theory is the dominant one, which is basically basically. Oh, I'm okay. So there's two. One is that um, b- behind all this. Nero had consciously and specifically spoken of his desire to rebuild Rome in his image and call it Neronia. Mm-hmm. Right. So everyone knew, and he even had plans drawn up. And so the theory is, is that they, they do, they do see where it might've started somewhere around the Colosseum in the, in the marketplace and it just blew out. Um, but they don't necessarily know who started it, but it could have happened because they you know, these, these marketplaces are just full of stuff. And, you know, and, and I think it was like, you know, a place that sold lamps. So it's, it's logical in that sense, you know? Um, and they did try to stop it. They had, you know, everyone's out there, but the problem is, is that there is some evidence made by some of the historians that they may have seen some people deliberately trying to start, uh, some of Roman guards and stuff, sort of encouraging the fires in certain places mm-hmm. and sort of starting them in other places, you know, at least there's some eyewitnesses of that. But the, to, to counter that, there is what they call backfires, which is sometimes you would actually want to start a fire before so it would stop the fire coming, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there's, there's arguments on both sides in that sense. And then, but lastly, the, the, the main idea is that either, either, it, either it started and Nero... Nero was not even there. He was he was you know forty miles away, in, engaging in a um, uh, a musical competition. That doesn't mean he didn't order it, but that's just the fact, right? So, so either it started and it was beneficial to his own plans, and so they may, either he let it go or you know it just got out of control because the winds were really bad. There's mm-hmm. a lot of facts that show that it really did, you know, it 
they don't know how it started, but it got out of control and they tried to stop it and they couldn't. And it burned down through two thirds of Rome. Wow. So th- my basic theory is that he either ordered it, he yeah. probably ordered it done by someone and then and made sure that it would happen so that he could have it uh, rebuilt as Neronia in his image. And then being out of town during that time was you know, part of the plan of, Hey, he's not around. So how could he have, you know, how could he have been part of it? Right. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's of course a weak evidence, but it's still helpful for his cause. Right. And, um, because in fact he did end up, you know, rebuilding Rome, but he didn't call it Neronia. So, uh, yeah. So my theory is that, Oh, oh, uh, the the last thing I neglected to say was the problem was if the popular, the populace started spreading gossip and rumors that he did this because they knew he was talking about Neronia, right? So, and the reality is, is it doesn't matter if you're Caesar and you're considered God. If the people rise up as a mob, they kill Caesars all the time, right? So uh, Hmm. the problem is, is that if they really became, if the mob grew and said, he he did this to us for his own glory, they would have killed him. So he did need a scapegoat. And I have another part of my theory based on my research that, uh, Josephus was in Rome at that time. He was supposed to be there for, um, you know, uh, trying to get some, some priests that were in trouble for some reason from mm. priests from Israel who were in prison. So he happened to be there at the time. And uh, Nero's emperor's wife, Popea, mm-hmm. was not necessary. was kind of like what they call a God-fearer. She was very open and very positive to Judaism. She wasn't a convert because she didn't follow it, but she loved it. And and so and Nero had some a couple of other famous Jewish people that he, uh, including a, a mime that he really really liked. Huh. And Josephus is there at that time, and so I think that Josephus was part of this you know sort of group of the inner circle of people. Yeah. Uh, suggesting the Christians because it fits so perfectly, right? Christians are saying. God's going to come and judge judge the world with fire, you know, judge the land with fire and all this. And so it fit perfectly, but it would also help the Jews to get Nero's eyes off of the Jews and onto the Christians. And, Even though the Christians were, yeah. many of them were Jews, they were still considered separate at that time. Yeah. And, that, and so that's that was a way to was kill. Going, Brian. Yeah, it, was, it was a way to kill one bird with two stones. Exactly, exactly. That's what I was wondering. I mean, it seems like at the birth of Christianity, uh, if you can get it right at the head uh, and have the Christians blamed for that, uh, you know, qui bono at Judaism. Yeah. So I, I you know, I'm just, and this is just me thinking out loud, like, man, all, how did just a group of people, the Christians, get blamed for that? And yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I have all that in my books. In the first book, Tyrant, I deal with all of that stuff. And it's just really interesting, fascinating history. And I try to be as historically accurate as possible while also bringing a supernatural Christian worldview. So I have in this series of novels, I have The Watchers. I have The Gods of the Nations, which is a, which is an idea that I carry over from Chronicles of the Nephilim. And for your hearers who may not be familiar with that, the notion is that in the book of Deuteronomy, there, well, there's, it's all over the Old Testament, but a lot of Christians, this is something a lot of Christians aren't aware of. But in the D- book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verses 8 through 10, it talks about how God says at the, at the Tower of Babel incident, when God separated the tongues and stuff, um, it says that he separated the nations and he separated them according to the number of the sons of God, which 
I argue is there's sup- they are supernatural beings from God's council that came to earth. That's another debate or another issue, but good one. So he numbers them, the Gentile nations, according to the sons of God, but Jacob, I will keep for my inheritance. So there's this notion of God is divvying out earthly territories to the Gentile nations. And we know that, you know, according to the Bible, at least in that worldview, they, they believed in 70 nations in Genesis 10. So there's 70 nations that are under the authority of these fallen sons of God, who they then worship as false gods, right? And then God says, but I will keep, but, but I will keep my people, Jacob, for myself, and Israel will be their land. And so it's this notion that God places under the authority of fallen watchers, false gods. He places all the Gentile nations who then worship them. And, and that's why you have this notion throughout the whole Old Covenant about um, – about this very thing where, I mean, there's so many examples of it, but but nevertheless, the idea is that in Psalm 82, you read about how God will judge these, these gods of the nations, yeah. and he will do it when Messiah comes, because when Messiah comes, what, what will happen? Messiah, Psalm 2, Messiah will inherit the nations, right? Yeah. The Son of God comes, and he, why? Because the nations were actually their territories were under the authority of God of other gods, but Messiah comes and takes back that territory, and therefore, no longer will God's people just be one people on one piece of land, but now pe- men and women from every tribe of every nation and every tongue can now come into the kingdom of God. That's what Messiah does, right? So my my understanding is that when Messiah comes, he he accomplishes that amazing feat, and um. And so I actually write about that in the uh, Chronicles of the Apocalypse ser- series. So I have these spirit beings. I sort of show the human side, and then I show the spiritual side. And, you know, it's speculative, but nonetheless, I try to keep it theologically accurate. Nice. Yeah, the, uh, I, I love the fact that you carry over the, uh, the characters from Chronicles of Nephilim, you know, the, uh, the angels, uh, and then also some of the watchers as well. Yeah, I this series is a standalone. You can read Chronicles of the Apocalypse starting with Tyrant. There's going to be four. There's three written now. Uh, but you're right. I all the all the spiritual beings I've carried over from the previous series. So you would actually learn a lot. There's a lot that is in Apocalypse that I refer to in Nephilim. But I try to explain it so you don't need to have read Chronicles of the Nephilim. But yeah, so I've got those things, and and you know uh, you've got this journey with these heroes and. Um, what happens is they ultimately they find out what this letter is. It's the book. It's the letter of Revelation, mm. and they they find John on Patmos and they find out what it really means. And they what they come to understand it as is oh, John explains them. No, this is a letter not of judgment upon Rome of the nations, but of judgment upon Israel, upon Jerusalem, and therefore. You know, it says basically that the armies of Rome are going to come down and destroy everything because Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know her end is near, right? And so they have to get the message to the Christians. And then I talk about the journey of going to Jerusalem, trying to persuade the Christians, it's happening, get out, get out. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so that's that's remnant, you know, and the remnant are the Jewish believers in Jerusalem that God wants to say before he destroys the city. Yeah, and that kind of of hits... uh... Alexander a lot in that book when he's seeing what the what Revelation actually is. What do you mean by Alexander? No, oh, it really hits. Oh, him. the hero. Yeah, he was, it really starts hitting him once he realizes what the what the letter actually is. Yes, Alexander is my Jewish doctor, and 
he starts out on a character journey from being basically a Jew who compromises in order to be, he's a Hellenistic Jew, which means he wants to compromise and have both his Jewish heritage and the Roman, Greco-Roman sort of, you know, status and, and, you know, that kind of a thing. And then he, like you said, he gets faced because of his Jewishness, he understands what's going on in the Christian community. And it pulls him toward that into a very powerful, um, a powerful confrontation with his spirituality, shall we say. <laughs> really cool. Uh, that was well done. So, so if I can, you know, keep dominating this discussion. Um, <laughs> so Resistant is the third book. And that is where I start to bring out now the Jews are revolting against Rome. And by the way, um, you know, people might be asking, well, where'd you get all this information? And there's really one dominant source that we have um, about this event of the fall of the, the Roman armies coming and destroying Israel and Jerusalem. And it's basically called Wars of the Jews it's by Josephus. Josephus yeah. Right. And so I, that's where I'm getting all my history stuff from. And so the, ne the next book, Res Resistant Revolt of the Jews, I focus in on how this revolt of the Jews rises up. They think Messiah is going to help us. And I have Rome coming in and starting to take over the territory of Israel leading up to the siege of Jerusalem. But, you know, that's going to happen in the last book, right? So that's kind of what this book is about. Well, meanwhile, our hero, which is uh, now our heroes, is Alexander, the Jewish guy and the Christian woman. They, are, he's a doctor and he, he's, he gets the conviction of, excuse me, he gets the conviction that he, he wants to go into the city of Jerusalem knowing that this stuff is going to happen, but he has a compassionate transformation in his heart and he wants to go and risk his life. And to try to be a doctor and help the wounded because there's so many innocent people in Jerusalem that are going to be, you know, killed and hurt by, by this attack. Right. So he goes into the heart of it with this Christian woman and they now are seeing inside Jerusalem what's happening as everything is starting to fall apart. And this is where my viewpoint is, comes in. I bring in the two witnesses who come and start prophesying. And so this is one of those cases where people think, well, that's in our future. But I actually think the two witnesses were something that occurred in Jerusalem at that time. Yeah. Were they literal or were they more metaphorical? I think they could be both. I don't know for sure, but I'm writing a fascinating theological story. So I'm making out them out to be individuals who represent, who symbolically represent the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. And many scholars say this anyway, that they are symbolic. Yeah. And, um, and so they represent, why? Why is that? Because the law and the prophets were the, was the Torah. And right. that was condemning. And, 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 uh, so let's put it this way. If God is going to destroy the old covenant and bring in the new covenant, right? And he's going to destroy the people who rejected him. What, God is a God of law. Right. So what does he do? He, he he does things according to law. And if you're going to engage in capital punishment on a criminal, you must have at least two witnesses. So mm -hmm. those are the two witnesses and the law and the prophets condemn them because why? Because they rejected Messiah. And so then he's going to destroy them. And that's the 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 harlot is the unfaithful wife. And he's going to remarry a new bride of Christ. And that's sort of the picture of what's going on in there. And that's what happens. And so. Um, I have the two witnesses in there going around and they're starting to bring forth the prophecies of all the plagues and all the things that are going to fall upon the people. So that's kind of what happens in resistant. And like I said, if you want, if you're, if you're at least open-minded enough to say, Hmm, what, what might another view look like? This will help you see 
how revelation could possibly be understood as happening as happening in the first century within their own context and will make it feel very very germane very uh sensible oh that's very that makes sense you know yeah i really think it does that for people yeah so brian I, I got another a question for you as well the um and then this gets uh, misinterpreted among uh, even cults and things like that as well. The 144,000, you think that would be the people who are in Israel at the time that were in Jerusalem at the time that were uh, uh, the, the, the remnant, I guess? The, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's the argument that I make in my book, Remnant, actually, is that if you look at the 144,000, first of all, this is another thing. Because they are Jews. They are Jews, right. But it, the number 144,000 is an obvious symbol, so it doesn't have to be a literal yes. number. <laughs> right. It's 12,000 of 12 tribes of Israel, Correct. right? It's, it's the number of perfection and all that. So, yeah, I actually think that, that um, and I'm following Ken Gentry's uh, interpretation here, that I believe that those 144,000 are the remnant. And who are the remnant in the Old Testament? They're always the true believers inside apostate Israel. Whenever Correct. Israel was apostate, God always said, but I have my remnant. Well, in the first century, Jews as a nation were apostate because they killed Messiah, but there was a remnant of Jews who did believe Messiah. Mm -hmm. Of course, we know that. And those are the remnant that he wanted to get out of the city that he was going to protect. And sure enough, we have a basic historical references that uh, through Eusebius and a couple of other historians that say the Christians in Jerusalem when the Roman armies were coming down, they fled to Pella because they had this prophecy uh, from Jesus, right? Yes. So that's who I believe is the symbolic representative. It may have actually been close to 104. I don't know, but but it's <laughs> but it's a symbolic number, which we yes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. That that was a great point yeah. about the two witnesses and the fact that how it correlates to actual judgment being placed upon Jerusalem. I've never ever thought to even make that connection. Uh, oh. Because yeah. you're right, it would be a lawful event, not just something done out of... <laughs> yeah, God doesn't just operate vindictively, right? He right. does things legally. And so here's, here's uh, you know, just for your listeners too, keep your eyes open. Go to Gadawa.com and sign up for my updates because this year a Revelation commentary is coming out that's going to change the evangelical landscape. I, I've already read it twice and it's... It's by Ken Gentry, and it's called The Divorce of Israel. Nice. And it's a, it's a redemptive historical preterist under, inter, uh, commentary on, mm. on the book of, of Revelation. And I'm following his basic ideas in there. And, uh, oh, I lost my track of thought where I was going with that. You mentioned the two witnesses. Oh, oh the judge. The, yeah. So his, the, the name of the book, the name of the two-volume series is called The Divorce of Israel. And his argument is... God divorces the you know the the the, the ethnic geopolitical nation of Israel, mm -hmm. not the remnant, but he does reject the, the nation as a whole. Why? Because they kill Messiah. So he's going to divorce them. But 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 divorce always required a certificate of divorce, mm -hmm. right? Right. Yep. God gave that in his law. So when you see Jesus with the seven sealed scroll, who can open it? The mm -hmm. argument is, is that's the scroll of divorce. And so Revelation itself is sort of the scroll of divorce that God is declaring, these are the reasons why I'm divorcing you. And these are the judgments you're going to experience. Here's my two witnesses. Now I'm going to engage in capital punishment. 
then I'm going to marry my new bride, which is the bride of Christ. Who's that? Well, it's the Christian believers, yeah. which is Jew and Gentile who believe, right? Right. And that includes both the remnant and the Gentiles from every nation. Yeah. So when you see in Revelation 21, when you see the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, another, you know, I, it's hard for me not to be sarcastic or uh, polemical, but <laughs> If it isn't obvious that that's symbolic to you, you really have a problem of <laughs> Bible interpretation because it's clearly symbolic. There's no way in earth that a you know some city twelve miles high into the atmosphere. It just it's well, it's, God does miracles, but He doesn't do absurdities, right? Yeah, I mean, the Revelation and, itself states it's it's a book of visions. Yeah, exactly. You know, in verse one, it says the, the it says the the angel gave this vision to John of the things that shall shortly come to pass, not thousands of years from now, but shortly. And then he says, these things were signified to John. The word for signified in Greek is semiosis, which is symbol. So yes, there are, there may be some actual, there are actual historical reference in symbolism. But when you say symbolism, that doesn't mean it's just, oh, it does, doesn't mean anything. No, it means that there are symbols that represent something actually in history. And so consequently, the new Jerusalem, but the, see, the thing is, is the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven is not something new. It's all over the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, you know, chapters eight and nine, it, or I'm sorry, chapters 12, it talks about you Christians have come to Mount Zion. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, you have come to, right? And then Galatians 5 talks about the Jerusalem from heaven, which is Christians, will inherit, but the Jerusalem on earth, which is the Jews who rejected him, will not inherit. And it's, it's so it's all over the New Testament that the new Jerusalem is the kingdom of God in the new covenant of Christ, right? Yeah. And so that's obviously, and, and the funny thing is, is I, I, I love doing this because it's, it's just so, it's, it's right there in the text. I mean, if you go to Revelation 21 and you go, a new heaven and new earth, and I saw the holy city coming out of heaven. Well, okay, anyone can say anything. But when the text itself tells you what it means, then you pretty much have to accept it. Right. And it tells you what it means. Look at further on down. This is Revelation 21. You, you see right down there in verse 9, he goes, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, I think pretty much every Christian acknowledges that that's the, the body of Christ is Absolutely. the bride. of. Yeah. And he goes, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And so he says, I will show you the bride. And then he says, the bride is the holy city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So he clearly says that the body of Christ is the symbolic new Jerusalem. So if you are a Christian, you are in the new Jerusalem. This yeah. is a glorious truth, you know, that that we should be more focused on it and appreciative of rather than thinking, oh, no, it's going to come. Oh, that's still in the future. You know, <laughs> it's going to come. It's going to be a physical. It's going to be a physical city. Mm -hmm. It's like right. the spiritual kingdom, it's spiritual. Kingdom. Yeah. With yeah. that, with that, we're going to we're going to introduce the next beer. So that that way we can everybody get catch a, a quick break. And uh, Gumby, go ahead. I got it too, man. Okay, yeah. You know what? Go ahead. You can read it, George. Yeah, no problem. So we got Sibling Revelry Brewing Company from Westlake, Ohio, which uh, Brian's probably, I don't know, half hour, 20 minutes from here, not too far. Yeah. This is their Coffee Red and 5.5 uh, ABV, 
35 IBU. Uh, and they're coffee beans they use from a duck rabbit uh, coffee, which is actually right up the road in Ohio. So that's about 10 minutes from here, 2 minutes from my house. A modern day version of Buzz Beer. There you go. <laughs> Cheers. 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 I'm straight in the can. It's good enough. <laughs> It smells awesome. It has that nice coffee aroma. Oh, and I love a coffee aroma. It's something special. Yeah, it has a nice amber color. I was actually surprised. Not not much head, which a lot of ambers are very heavy on head. Um, this one, not so much. This is a little bit close to um, uh, the one in uh, Willoughby. Willoughby beer. Uh, oh, they, my Lord. This is... Uh, it's, a little it's, bit close. Not it's, quite. It's not quite as dark as that. No. Uh, nor as thick. Um but man, the flavor's fantastic. Yeah. Are you talking about the one that has peanut butter in it? Yeah. Yeah, the peanut butter oh, coffee. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, it it it's amazing. No no question, it's amazing. But this is a nice amber, and I love the flavor of this because it's the coffee's not overpowering. It's almost subtle. It's definitely there. Absolutely, yeah. Oh man, it's it's really good. I have a good wife. She she bought it for me. She called me. She's like, hey, you know, I'm at the store. Do you want anything? <laughs> yeah. it's it's not hoppy at all yeah it's it's i mean this is definitely a smooth lager with that nice imbued flavor of coffee oh yeah this is very yeah. well balanced i Good stuff. i love coffees and this one is definitely up there now yeah i'm enjoying this so am i the only one that didn't know what the word revelry <laughs> anyone seriously i'm asking does anyone know you can just laugh at me well, uh, like sibling sibling revelry though like, when it's no. uh Okay, no. go ahead. That's all right. It's not rivalry. No. It's revelry. Oh, shoot. Yeah, I didn't actually read the can. Yes, yeah, but I actually revelry. looked at it. Oh, look at that. So what is the uh, the definition of it? I didn't look Let's at it. Brian's pretty smart. Ryan, you want to crack at it? It means to rejoice in. Yeah, yeah it's pretty Revel- good. Ah. Yeah. Google has, Celebrate. has lively and noisy festivities, especially when those involve drinking larges, large amount of alcohol. Oh. That was a George. Fun fact. <laughs> the more you know. Well, thank you, George. I didn't. I didn't read the can. It. It does say revelry. And I'm with you. Like, all the way up until today, I thought it was sibling rivalry. I thought it like, was too. I've even ordered it at bars before and called it rivalry, but it's not. <laughs> That's redug on awesome. That's a great beer. Really good. I always thought it's revelry so was the uh, really is the wake up. Uh, call in the morning so, for the military. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> point something out on. I'm gonna point something out too once you're done. Okay. Yeah, yeah we're ready. Please, let's please. let's go at it. By the way, did I tell you guys that I was born and raised in the northwest suburbs of Chicago? No, really. No. Yeah. Awesome. Cause you're 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 in Illinois. No, no, we're in Cleveland, Ohio. Ohio. Oh, I thought you were, you mentioned Westlake, Illinois. No, Westlake, oh, Ohio. Westlake, Ohio. Oh, I'm sorry, I miss, I miss I misheard you. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Still a Midwestern, but I'm a Midwestern boy. Yeah, I do like Chicago. <laughs> um, it's funny that you that you bring up because historically, among all the traditional churches, and when I say traditional, I mean like, you know, Catholic, Orthodox, uh, even Lutheran. Um, among the traditional branches of Christianity, they've always held to an Amil, even borderline preterist perspective. So it's it's the modern Christian movement that has taken that into a whole new direction, um, yeah. thanks to all of the you know your Hal Lindsey's dispensationalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, you're right. And 
I mean, look, I've I've been in some mild debates and stuff here and there with different guys. And um, one of the things that I'm not that interested in talking about is whose view is the earliest view in the church and all that, because everyone tries to claim our view is the earliest view in the church. But from what my what my little reading has shown me was that I have found vestiges of every view going all the way back in the early church. They're not the same, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, obviously we've developed them in different directions, but I've seen, you know, I've seen pieces of every view in the yes. early church. So, you know, even views that were thinking that, you know, it was all about Israel, you know, becoming a nation again, even. And so, mm-hmm. but, but historically speaking, you're right. I think that dispensationalism is mm-hmm. the one that has in the, basically, you know, sometime around, I think, well, I mean, uh, I think, what was it, uh, Ryrie's uh, Bible study or whatever. Who was the guy who... Schofield. Schofield, I'm sorry, Schofield, yeah. yeah. So that was where, where the dispensationalism started to grow, and now that is one of the most dominant ones. And the heart and soul of that one is, it's all about Israel. It's all about God. It's all about God uh, uh, wanting to fulfill his prophecies for Israel. And so the way that they interpret prophecy is, is that the church is a parenthesis, meaning... God's really cares about Israel, but uh, the church has come along and sort of taken over for a while, but then the church is going to be raptured and God can get back to fulfilling <laughs> prophecy to Israel. Right. And what they compl- and what's so, uh, in a way, it's, it's theologically abominable mm. because it, it actually intrinsically denies the gospel inclusion of the Gentiles into God's people. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, you can be, you can be saved, but God really cares about Israel. And it creates two plans of salvation yeah. because because they see, yeah, the church is God's people, but Jews are still God's people as if Jews are separate from Christians. And so there's two plans of God, two peoples of God. And that is pretty much a denial of the gospel because the gospel says there's one people of God who are Jews and Gentiles united only in faith. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if yeah. you don't have faith, Paul says in Romans 9, you are cut off yeah. and cut off. Is not we think of cut off like the cut off of the branch. He uses it as an analogy, but in ancient Israel, the concept of cut off had to do with liturgical separation from the holiness and sacredness of God. Yeah. So there's mm-hmm. a whole lot more at play in that concept, wow. right? Yeah. So you're right. That yeah. view has dominated. Well, and it's it's sad too because if you look at it, there's the traditions that were set up by the church protected that. Like, because you had people, for for example, you had people like uh, Justin Martyr, who had a somewhat millennial view, um, but even he himself in his letters said, well, even though I see that this is my view, um, I have to bow to the church because there are far more scholars than I in the church, and they disagree. So, or, or Origen, yeah. for example, who had a lot of, well, he had a lot of diverse views, but, <laughs> yeah. but um, once again, uh, he had to obey the church because you have a this united body and they all agree um, on what has to be. And that so that makes a lot of sense because a consensus view and those traditions protect the church against things like dispensationalism. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I I agree with you in principle and I support I actually, you know, I, I also am in 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 favor of that sort of respect of the body, but I also do acknowledge that nevertheless, I still believe that the church can be wrong and has been wrong historically. <laughs> and so, uh, mm-hmm. there's, you know, I, 
I'm a sola scriptura guy, um, so I do believe that scripture is ultimately over tradition. But I do acknowledge and, and I admit that nevertheless, there's there's a little bit of meshing in there that is, makes me uncomfortable. But I have to admit is yeah. is real, and and so I'm willing, you know, I, I'm willing to to you know uh, admit that sort of uh, messiness, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I think, but I do think that in the end, uh, you know. What, what we what we have is the Bible, and and I do believe that making your arguments from the Scripture is the pri- is the best thing to do. If you want to convince anybody, let's put it that way. If you want to convince other Christians, you better make it from the Bible as best as possible, and your historical arguments should support it. But in the end, uh, to me, if you, your Scripture arguments tend to trump uh, historical arguments because the Church has been wrong, yeah. and so. Therefore, when I get into some of these debates and, and that I've had with. Um, some dispensationalists and stuff. It's kind of like the I had. I don't get into a lot of them. I haven't. But but the <laughs> latest one that I did, um, it was really interesting because um, I I wasn't sure what, exactly what he believed. You know, I, I didn't have a lot of time to research him and all that. But you know, um, but when we argued, like our our debate was, who is the harlot in Revelation? You know, and his belief was the harlot is um, America uh, <laughs> in the future. My argument was the harlot is a symbol of the Jewish high priesthood in first century Israel. And what I realized was, because again, I don't spend a lot of time learning all these views of their side because it's just, it's, I don't know, it's redundant. It's not very interesting and, and they're not very biblical. So, but his arguments weren't, I'm like, I'm like making all these arguments from the Bible and he, I was actually expecting him to make some arguments and he never yeah. really did. But, and it was actually it actually surprised me, and I I just thought like wow you know if it was me listening to this mm-hmm. I'm gonna I tend to I tend to to uh, I tend to be uh, more convinced persuaded yeah. by someone who can <laughs> who can argue from the Bible than someone who can say well you know I think it could be Islam because Islam's really evil and they did this and that and it's like in other words you can exegete from the newspaper or from the Bible what's it gonna be right yeah I got a kind of point on what both both of you guys were saying you know tying back you made a comment and you call dispensationalism a theological abomination yeah and and i agree with you however today it exists as a theological abomination but it's also geopolitically advantageous for some yeah so and my point is is the ambassador to the u.n from israel to the united nations is danny dayon and they were, you know, they were going back and forth over settlement issues and whether or not it's legal or not. And, you know, they, they have so many resolutions against the state of Israel that exists today. And what, his only argument to that was literally holding up the Bible. Yeah. He's like, if you want to argue something, you have yeah. to argue this because he says our deed to the land is right here. Yeah. 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 And then you know and, and, how what how are people supposed to even try to respond to that, you know? Well, yeah, you're exactly right. It's 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 an unargu- you'll never persuade them because they believe it's it's God himself, right? Mm-hmm. And which is kind of interesting because I find myself often in the in in the um in the middle of I actually support Israel because she is a democratic nation, an ally of ours and surrounded by um tyranny and totalitarian regimes who want to destroy her and kill. She's the only nation that anybody wants to actually, con- that 
any nation actually says they want to destroy, right, and get rid of and genocide and all this uh, against her, like Iran, right? And she's in the middle of, of you know, uh, a Muslim totalitarian monstrous world of slavery. And so I support anyone who tends to be more democratic and such. So politically, I support them uh, as, as an American ally and such. Um, and and so I'm I'm actually very positive about them and and I, but I don't believe Israel right or wrong and if she did, you know if Israel engages in you know illegal or immoral uh, activities I'm you know obviously we'll, we should condemn it but what you're saying is unfortunately um, but I don't believe that she has Israel has a divine right to the land anymore because that land has has become the earth and the kingdom of God Jesus now is the king over all the earth including the land of Israel and such yeah. so I, so I find myself you know. Supporting Israel, but when, like you say, when the dispensationalists refuse to face maybe anything that Israel might be doing wrong, because in the end, but God gives them the land. Now you're right; it becomes impossible to argue with people like that because they, you don't have the same ultimate authority for their for their ownership. You know? Yeah, it's and their so it's I, their interpretation that dictates that. Exactly, and and what that means is, I think what you're getting at is the logical conclusion of that is you have Christians who are justifying a country that sometimes engages in immoral deeds or atrocities, right? And mm -hmm. and they're justifying it in the name of they're God's people, it's God's land, right? Yeah. God gave it to them. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not saying that that's always the case because I personally believe that that Israel, it is their land because in you know 1948 and, and the Balfour De Declaration, Basically, they were allowed to uh, nationally acknowledge they were given the land and national sovereignty, and every nation on the face of the earth basically uh, owns its land from conquering. So, you know, once they've been rec internationally acknowledged as being this is their nation, I, I accept that as a, an international acknowledgement that this is their land. Uh, but again, that's ge you know that's geopolitical. It's 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 political, but it's not divine it's not a religious right right and so therefore I, I accept the fact that you can make arguments against uh whatever what they're doing if, if what they're doing is wrong or what have you so yeah, yeah it's it's, yeah, yeah. it's really sad well that's i know because a lot of their government leaders firsthand believe that about um the bible and, and quite honestly they they could care too less about the new testament at all yeah so, yeah well or, or to put it in more frank terms uh most of them hate Jesus. Mm -hmm. They hate Messiah, right? Yeah, right? And and we're talking Israel hates Messiah, and you've got and I've heard some of these guys True. like um, John Hagee, you know, and they're just talking all these glorious things about how you know the people of God, Israel and Jews are the people of God, and it's like, well, they hate Jesus. So <laughs> right. you're, you're actually saying people who hate Jesus are are actually saved or God's people, and it's just like, wow. Now that doesn't mean that. You know, we should hate Jews, obviously. No, you know, no. but here, here's the problem: is is whenever you start to 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 hold um, hold Israel up to the same moral standards that you would hold any other nation up, including America, right? Uh, dispensationalists then try to use that as a tactic to to. Uh, try to label you anti-Semitic. Oh yeah, yeah. And I've had that yeah. done. I've had that done to me, and I, oh. I, it really got me angry. And I, 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 I put him in his place, and I nailed him. And it's like this is, you know, this is a horrendous public slander. How dare you say that? When, um, just because I am saying Jesus said, 
that the first generation of Jews who killed Messiah would have all the blood of the prophets and be judged. And you're, you're hinting that I'm anti-Semitic. And of course, I never said this to him because we never got enough into the debate. But basically, you're saying Jesus is anti-Semitic. And I wouldn't yeah. want to – if you want to do that go as a Christian, go ahead. Right. I wouldn't want to be in your place. It's right? been done before. It has yes. been done before. But you brought up last time, which, and I, I never forgot this, which is actually more anti-Semitic, rapture theology where how many Jews will end up being slaughtered uh, for that theology to work. You know, that yes. theology – in and of itself, I think it fuels anti-Semitism. Yeah, and I, and by the way, I did bring that up to the to this dispensationalist, and I, I did say that. And basically, the principle is, if you believe that God uh, God gives the land to Israel, and you're encouraging Jews go back because it's your land, it's God gave you the land, so you could go back to the land of Israel, while at the same time you believe as a dispensationalist that, according to Zechariah thirteen. Two-thirds of the land of Israel are going to be killed in the Great Tribulation. You are knowingly encouraging Jews to go back to a land that you know two-thirds of them will be murdered. Mm-hmm. You're right. That is anti-Semitic. And, and that's, that's cruelty. I don't right. believe that's going to happen. And I believe that, that any murder of Jews, genocide or whatever, is completely abominably evil. And so I'm the one who's really against that. But dispensationalists are actually the ones that are for the destruction of two-thirds of the Jews because of their beliefs. Yeah. And to me, that, like you say, if you look at it with a different viewpoint, you start to realize, well, maybe there's, maybe that is actually what lacks a true moral integrity. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. I want to point out that I really like that poster behind you. Yeah, that's Chronicles. <laughs> you can buy that on my website, Gadawa.com. Go to the store. <laughs> awesome. You can get the poster, Chronicles of the Apocalypse, for only thirty dollars. I don't know what it is, twenty, thirty dollars, whatever. I like seven dollars for shipping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it's a it's a, it's a poppin' poster. Cool, thanks. <laughs> Join us for the rest of the conversation in part two. <laughs>